If you've got your Bibles with you, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3 as we conclude a series of studies we began almost two months ago uh, through seven letters that Jesus told John to write down, send out along that ancient Roman mail route to the seven churches in Asia Minor. We've entitled this simple series of studies, uh, Can You Hear Me Now? Let me remind you that these were seven literal local churches, very much like Abilene Baptist Church. But not only were they seven local churches, they are also seven. The number means wholeness, completeness, perfection. And so these are seven letters for every church of every age, anywhere and everywhere. And then one of the last things that I really didn't focus on until perhaps last Sunday morning that I should have spent some more time dealing with is the fact that these seven letters represent the various ages of the church from the days of the New Testament all the way through the end of the age. And if you remember, as we made our way through these letters, uh, we've seen what Jesus had to say to the loveless church at Ephesus. We've seen what he had to say to the persecuted church at Smyrna. We've seen what he had to write and what he told John to send out to the compromising church at Pergamos. We've seen what he had to say to the corrupt church at Thyatira, the dead church at Sardis. Last time we looked at the faithful church at Philadelphia, and that brings us this morning to the lukewarm church at Laodicea. And Unlike where Jesus had nothing negative to say to the church at Philadelphia, he has nothing complimentary to say to the church at Laodicea. Now, the name Laodicea literally means ruled by the people or uh, the, the, the justice of the people or it is the rights of the people. And so everything here is about them. And he calls them the lukewarm church. Now, we know what lukewarm means, especially, especially on Father's Day. Now, I never have understood why on Mother's Day we grill out guys, right? We grill out we cook for mom on Mother's Day. Any of you wives grilling out for your husband today? Like three or four of you, maybe. Because guys, guys, any of you all grilling out for Father's Day? Can I see your hands? Any of the guys? Yeah, several of y'all around here. And so guys, we know, ladies too, you grilling out as well. And uh, so we know what lukewarm means because when you're dealing with meat, you want to make sure that it is either hot, right? So uh, what? Uh, 145 degrees for a steak minimum, uh, 160 degrees for ground beef minimum, 165 degrees for poultry or pork. You want it to be hot or you want it on the other end to be very cold. If you're going to keep it in the refrigerator for a couple of days, what, just a little bit less than 40 degrees in the 30s or something like that. If you want it to be cooled or cold or frozen for a long time, you want it just as close to uh, zero degrees Fahrenheit as you possibly can. Because you know that if it is not hot or if it is not cold, if you leave it out on the counter and it becomes lukewarm or room temperature for very long, how many of y'all know that's a bad thing? Can I, can I see your hands right? Any of y'all experienced that lately? Can I see your hands? I want to know what houses to stay away from. Can you raise your hand? And so Jesus sends out a letter warning the Laodiceans about the danger of lukewarmness. And so we understand that. We, we know that. Let me give you the background for this city like we've been doing all throughout this series of studies. Number one, the city of Laodicea, of course, one of the churches of Asia Minor, uh, it was about 100 miles uh, to the east of Ephesus. And it had two other what we call sister cities. Uh, you had Hierapolis to the north. You had Colossae to the east. And, uh, and so it, it is a very famous, well-known city. As a matter of fact, there is a scriptural connection between 
Laodicea and Colossae that you may not be aware of. Matter of fact, if you go over, you don't turn them, you can look on the screen, Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 16. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae and he says, Now when the epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And so Paul writes to the church at Colossae and he says, hey, share this book, this letter with the church at Laodicea and there's a letter that I'm sending to them that I want you to read as well. Now here's the thing. We have obviously the letter to the church at Colossae. It is the book of Colossians. We do not have, unless it is as some theologians believe, the letter to the Laodiceans is the letter to the church at Ephesus. We don't know that, but there's some who surmise that. So I, I thought about this this past week. Just because Paul wrote something didn't mean that it was Scripture. You have one letter to the church at Colossians that gets put into the Bible. You have a letter to the Laodiceans that perhaps is not put into the Bible. What makes the difference? It is the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And so you have this very wealthy, well-known, well-to-do city, a celebrity kind of a city that he writes a letter to this lukewarm church. Now, it's a well-known city. It's a wealthy city. Matter of fact, it's known for its banks. Uh, it was called the Wall Street of Asia Minor. They even had a gold reserve there. It's so wealthy that when the earthquake hit that area in 60 AD, remember last week, uh, Caesar came and he paid to rebuild uh, the city of Philadelphia, and so they renamed the city Neo Caesarea. Well, when Caesar came to Laodicea, he offered to rebuild and pay for it, and they said, We don't need your money. We have enough of our own, and we'll just rebuild it ourselves. So it's a very wealthy city, very much known for its banks. It's also known for its hospitals, its, its medicine. Uh, matter of fact, you had really what you might call the Medical College of Laodicea. Uh, that was there, not MCG, but MCL. And uh, very well known for a particular eye ointment known as Phrygian powder. People would come all from all over the world for this, for this powder, this, this Phrygian eye salve that they would use to anoint the eyes and to take care of eye conditions. And so it's known for its banks, it's known for its, its hospitals and its medical industries, just like Abilene. Uh, here in Augusta, we have some of the finest hospitals anywhere in the nation. I've always kind of wondered and marveled that, that people live longer here than, and in better health than perhaps any other place that I've ever served. I mean, we've got people all over, our, all over our congregation in their 90s, upper 90s, in better condition even than, than I am because of the medicine and the medical facilities they have there. And then also it's known for its garment industry. So they, they produce this really, really fine, glossy, black kind of a wool that they use to produce a particular kind of clothing uh, called a tramada. And people came from all over the world to buy this tramada. And uh, kind of like a Hart Shepherd Mark suit for today or uh, perhaps a Canali blazer or something like that. It was very, very well known. And so a wealthy, well-to-do, well-known kind of a city. But they had a big problem. And the problem was their water. Because their water stunk. Like, really stunk. We're kind of blessed here in the CSRA. We've got pretty good water, right? Anybody ever lived where they had bad water? Can I see your hands? You ever live where they had bad water? So when we lived in Simpsonville, there in the Greenville, South Carolina area, I, I don't know that we realized how fortunate we were to live there back in those days, Josh. We, I, I got a letter from the Greenville Water District one time explaining to me how 
The water we had there was some of the best in the nation, making it some of the best in the world. It came off of those mountain streams and those mountain lakes, and we just had great water. Here in the CSRA, we have pretty good water. Every now and then, it tastes like dirt because it comes off of the, uh, uh, off of the lake and, and that time of the year when you have the algae. But for the most part, we have, we have pretty good water. Again, anybody ever live where they have nasty water? Can I see your hands? I'm coming back to you in just a minute. And so there was a guy in the Sahara Desert. He was lost, and he was trying to find some water. He was dying of thirst, and he had crawled on his hands and knees for what seemed to be a hundred miles. He finally comes upon this guy in the middle of the desert with a, tie, with a table, and on that table, dozens of neckties. Now, now look right here. Stanley, don't you write me a letter about my necktie, right? But he comes up to this guy selling neckties in the middle of the desert, and he says, water, water, I, I need some water. I'm dying of thirst. He says, well, I don't have any water, but would you like a necktie? Matter of fact, I got one that will, that will match exactly what you've got on right now. He said, no, I don't need a necktie. I need water. He said, well, my brother's got a, a, a restaurant about four or five miles that way. Just crawl over there and, and go get you some water. So he crawls off over the horizon two or three hours later. He crawls back. He looks worse now uh, than he did before. And uh, he, he said, well, di didn't you go to find my brother's spot? He said, yeah. Did you get some water? He said, no. He said, why? He said, because you had to have a necktie to get in there. <laughs> so let's talk about the stinky water at Laodicea. Look at this letter that Jesus writes. He, he starts off with the introduction of the Lord in verse number 14. And here's what he writes. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And so a lot like I've seen with the military here in the area or even emails now, you have your name and who you are at the beginning. Not, it's, it's, it's different than when we write letters, we put our name at the end. But here in these letters, you, you state who you are up front. And so Jesus is introducing himself to the Laodiceans. And he begins by introducing himself as the amen. Now, we know what the word amen means. We, we say it at the end of prayers, right? If you're gathering this morning and you're having prayer in your class, when somebody gets done, you're all going to say either out loud or quietly there to yourself, you're going to say amen. Why, why? Because amen means it's true, it's valid, and it's binding. That, that's why we say at the end of a lot of times on Sunday morning, we'll have a prayer, and I'll, at the very end I'll say, and all God's people said... Amen. That's right, because what you're saying is that's true. What you've just said, it's true. It is valid, and it is binding. But when you use it as a title like Jesus does here, it kind of is a little bit different. Matter of fact, Mount says it this way. Mount says that here when Christ says that he's the amen, that it's his way of saying that he is the one to whom conformity to reality is exemplified. Now what that means is, is that all the promises of God, all of the statements of God find their fulfillment, they find their, their reality in Jesus Christ, which is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. That's Christ Jesus. And so when Jesus Christ came, all the promises of God, all the statements of God, all the truth of the Word, they are validated. They are, they are exemplified in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the endorsement and the acknowledgement and the validation of everything that is true. And He is the one in whom reality is actually found. He is the amen. amen. Thank you. But not only is He the amen... 
He calls himself the faithful and the true witness. Now, the word witness there, you know from our study, is the word martis. We get our word martyr from this. And so the word originally had the idea of one who gives testimony in a court of law, but it came to carry the idea that one who gives his life as a result of giving testimony. And so by this time in the New Testament, all those are connected in this word martyr because if you testified to what you knew to be true of Jesus Christ, you would very likely give your life for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that this is a hard time to live. Jesus knows that this is a dangerous day to live and to stand up for him. And so there, there will be those who will be tempted to, to step back. There will be those who will be tempted to sit down. There will be those who will be tempted to shut up and to not testify of Jesus Christ, to not say the whole truth. And so Jesus comes to them and he reminds them that he is the amen, the validation, the, the exclamation point of all the promises, the fulfillment of all the statements of God. And he is the faithful and true witness who gave his life for us. Amen. He is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness. And he is the beginning of the creation of God. The word beginning there is the word arche. Your Bible may have the word ruler. It is the idea of one who is the originator. Paul said to the church at Colossae, he said that he is the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or power, all things were created through him and for him. And so Jesus comes to this lukewarm church. And Jesus says, I know the persecution. I know what you're facing there. I am the amen. All the promises of God are fulfilled in me. I am the faithful and true witness who gave my life for you. And I am the ruler, the originator of everything that is. I am the beginning and the end. I am the, 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 I am the amen. That's what he's saying to them. And here's the thing. When, when, he, when, when, he, when he gives this letter to them, can, can you imagine how they would, must have felt having this letter? So if I had this letter, I'd... I'd frame and put it on the wall. And everybody that came to my house, I'd show them, hey, look, look at my letter. Look, 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 look at their beginning. Look who, look who wrote me this letter, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. They're so, so excited, so proud. It's kind of like up in my office. I've got a little card. When you walk into my office, it's up there on the shelf from Condoleezza Rice, a handwritten note from Condoleezza Rice. And if you come to my office, one of the things I'm probably going to show you, hey, look, I have, a, I have a note from Condoleezza Rice. I mean, first lady member of the masters. I mean, I, I mean I've got a letter from Condoleezza Rice. And so they're, they're putting it up on the wall. Can't you imagine? They're putting it up on the wall. They're so excited. Hey, look here, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. They're so excited until they get to that next point. And now they're not nearly as excited. Because you don't just have the introduction of the Lord, you have the inspection of the Laodiceans. Look what he says beginning in verse number 15. He says there beginning in verse number 15, he says, I know your works. And by the way, can I say this to Abilene again this morning, that he knows your works? He knows our works? I know your works. That you're neither cold nor hot. I, I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot... I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. 
and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And so Jesus writes him here. He doesn't just introduce himself. He inspects him. He's walking amongst the lampstands and he's looking through those fiery, penetrating, piercing eyes and he's looking to see and he talks about their condition and here's what he says. You're not cold and you're not hot. You're just kind of lukewarm. You're bleh. Now, normally the way this is preached over the years, I've always had a problem with it. Normally the way that this is preached is that hot means that you're on fire for Jesus, right? You're enthusiastic for Jesus. You're excited for Jesus. You're fervent for Jesus. And then, so cold must be the exact opposite of that, right? I always had a problem with this. Because why would he want you to be the complete opposite? Why would him halfway be better? I always kind of had an op- a problem with that. I'd rather you be cold or hot, but you're not, hot, you're not cold or hot. You're lukewarm. So, I'd, so why, why would he want that? Well, for, for one thing, let's say this right here. I think that he wants us to be on fire for him. Can I get an amen? amen. I, I think that he wants us to be fervent, fervent and excited about him and encouraged by him. It's kind of like Vince Lombardi said years ago. He told his guys, he said, you will either be fired with enthusiasm or you'll be fired with enthusiasm. And as Jesus looks at the church at Laodicea, and as he looks at Abilene Baptist Church, I can hear him saying, either you will be fired, fervent, with excitement, enthusiasm, or I will fire you (laughs) with enthusiasm. Vance Havner always said, it's a good thing that God didn't fire Christians. If not, if rather, if so, it would be raining pink slips from heaven. So that's the traditional understanding, and I've always had a problem with that because it doesn't make sense. Why would he want you to be the exact opposite of hot? Why would he want you to be antagonistic, not excited? I don't think it's the right understanding. I think the correct understanding goes back to the water of this city. So remember, you've got three sister cities. You've got Hierapolis to the north, and Hierapolis is known for its hot healing springs. People would go there with joint issues and skin issues, and you would get in this hot mineral water and kind of like going to hot springs. And you would go there and you would find healing. Or if you went to the east, you'd go to Colossae, and Colossae was known for its crystal clear, cold, refreshing water. If Coke were there, they would bottle it up and, 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 and market it as Colossae Mountain Spring Water, Right? The problem was, by the time the cold water got from Colossae, they, 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 they brought it in by these clay pipes. And you can, if you go there with me next year, uh, if we go there, uh, you'll find these piles, these clay pipes. It's like the pipes that you find in the walls at Pompeii. They're the Mount Vesuvius and uh, in the walls there. And so they had these clay pipes. And so by the time they would come from the, the cold area of Colossae through that hot sun, by the time they got to Laodicea, they're just tepid, lukewarm, blah. But then also if you bring in the water from Hierapolis, as a matter of fact, there's a, a famous waterfall there where this, this mineral water with all these minerals like sulfur in it, it would come over the side of that waterfall and the wind would pick up those water particles and it just made that entire area stink. Even if you go there with me, you look in the pipes and still there's a residue of all the minerals that, that kind of 
caked up the inside of those pipes. And so by the time you got down there, I mean, it's just, it's just nasty. It's, it stinks. When I asked you earlier if you ever lived anywhere where they had nasty water, stinky water, anybody ever lived in Jacksonville? You know what I'm talking about? Years ago, I went to the pastor's conference at First Jack's. My very first church, we didn't have any money. My brother and I went down there and stayed with a friend of his who lived in a little small trailer outside of town. And I was raised in an area, and I've always lived in areas where we had pretty good water. I wasn't prepared for what I experienced that day. This guy had sadly gone through a divorce, and so it was just him and me and my brother there. And so I went in to get a shower. And when I went in there in the shower and I turned on the hot water, oh, I wish I hadn't have done that. Cold would have been much better. That sulfur water came out of that shower head, and it smelled like rotten eggs. I, I, I couldn't get away from it. I, I couldn't get I never, I never smelled anything like that in my life. And I'm trying to figure out what can I do. I, 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 number one, I'm going to stink. But then I can't stay in here. I'm about to lose my breakfast. And so I started looking outside the shower. And again, his wife, when she was still there, she had evidently gone and she had bought some of these little flower rose-shaped, rose-scented soaps. And she had them like some of you ladies would do, it kind of in a bowl on the backside of the toilet. And I remember taking one of those soaps and sticking it in my nose and smelling that so I could just get through that shower. Because <laughs> it stunk. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. Matter of fact, look, look what he says down there in verse 16. He says, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you're not healing like Hierapolis, and you're not refreshing like Colossae, you're just tepid, lukewarm, Stinky, blah. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. There's a picture as you head off to lunch in a few minutes. <laughs> what does it mean? Remember back in chapter 1, Jesus gave them a warning as he's walking amongst the lampstands where he says, if you don't repent, I'll come and I'll remove your lampstand from its place. Remember that? It's the same image. It means the same thing. I'm going to take my blessings away from you. I'm going to take my, my anointing, if you will, away from you. And that's exactly what happened to this church. If you were to go there to Turkey today, where all these churches were, you, you would be hard-pressed to find a thriving, growing Christian church. And what was the first church area of the world? If you go to Northeast Africa... Where you had that Ethiopian, you'd be hard-pressed. I mean, no. And then you move over to England, and for centuries, England was the hub of Christianity. You go there today, and they just give tours through the cathedrals. It moved to the United States in the first and second great awakening. But in the last several years, baptisms are down, church memberships down, the rise of the nuns, because we become complacent, not hot and healing or cold and refreshing. And Jesus has come and removed 
the lampstand perhaps. And now, where's the church thriving? In Africa, South America, and Asia. And God gives them a warning and God gives us a warning. That if you're not cool and refreshing spiritually, if you're not hot and healing spiritually, if you are just lukewarm, bleh, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Now, why is that? Look at the causes down there in verse 17, first part. He says in verse 17, because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. What was the root of their complacency? They had come into money. They'd come into money. And money has a habit of making people forget how much they need God. And I've seen it here at Abilene, 11 years. I have pictures and faces in my mind of people who have sat in my office over the years. Pastor, will you help and pray for us? We're about to lose our home. We're about, I'm going to lose my job. I don't have to take care of my family. Uh, I'm starting a new business. Pastor, will you pray for my business to do well? And we did, and God blessed them. And now you never see them. They have money to travel. They never even give a second thought to God. We've even seen it through, through COVID. The CSRA, we are, really, we are really impervious to a lot of the financial conditions that face our nation. Unless it's a government shutdown, we really are immune to a lot of the problems in the economy that the other parts of our nation face. I've seen that here in the 11 years. The only time that we've ever really like lost our minds was in the government shutdown about my second or third year here. What I've seen is that God has blessed us in this area. This area is growing. Our people are, are advancing in their careers, and they have more and more money. And so when they have more and more money, they're gone. You never see them because money has a way of making people think that they don't need God. That's exactly what the Laodiceans, we are wealthy and have need of nothing. We don't need Caesar to rebuild our town and we don't need you, God, to make sure that we have a good life. Now, what are the consequences? Look down there in verse 17, the end of it. He says, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Miserable. What do you mean miserable? We live in Laodicea. We are the envy of this whole part of the world. Wretched. Miserable. Poor. Poor. We're, we're wealthy. We have all kinds of money. We didn't eat any Caesar. We got a gold reserve. We have a thriving economy. What do you mean we're poor? Blind. Blind. Do you not know we, we, people come from all over the world for our Phrygian powder to take care of their eye problems? We're not blind. Naked, naked, we, we make the finest tremadas in the world. I mean, Canali has nothing on us. <laughs> and here's the problem. Are y'all still there this morning? It's a little close, isn't it? The problem that they have is the problem that we so often have. We're looking at secular measurements exterior measurements have you not seen our building do you not know how much money we have do you not know how many show up here on a sunday morning last sunday the first Sunday, we have 1236 here last sunday and those are all fine and good but jesus says i'm not looking at the exterior i'm not measuring you by the secular measurements i'm measuring you spiritually are you refreshing 
like Colossae? Are you healing like Hierapolis? Are people being saved? Are people being strengthened? Are people being spiritually refreshed? All this other stuff doesn't amount to a hill of beans if those things aren't true. And then you see the counsel, verse 18. I counsel you, not command, because he's a gentleman. I counsel you to buy from me, and the emphasis is from me, gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. They thought they were rich. Jesus says you're poor. And you need to buy from me, not from the gold reserve in the middle of town, but from me, gold refined in the fire. They thought they were well known for their clothing. And Jesus says you're naked. And everybody's about to know that you're naked. By the way, do y'all know that there's a difference between naked and naked? <laughs> naked means you don't have no clothes. Naked means you ain't got no clothes on. You're doing something you're not supposed to be doing, right? And it's about to be revealed. You're naked. And I'm counseling you to come get from me white garments so that your nakedness will not be revealed. They were well known for their eye salve, Phrygian powder. And Jesus says, you're blind. And they said, what do you mean blind? And he says, I counsel you to come to me so that I can anoint your eyes so that you can see. And all across America, people in churches today think they're rich when they're poor. They think they're clothed when they're naked. And they think that they can see when they're actually blind. And Jesus says, I counsel you to come to me. And then lastly, look at the Lord's instructions for the way out of sins. He says, beginning of verse 19, As many as I love and rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And so he gives some instructions here. And the instructions that he gave to them are the instructions that he gives to us. And I want you to write these down. The very first thing that he says is, Obey because Jesus loves you. Obey. He says down there, I love you. Because I love you, I'm going to rebuke you. I'm going to chasten. The Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he what? Chastens. I don't know about you, but growing up, when my dad showed me that kind of love, it didn't feel like love. Right? But the Bible says that he loves us, and as a result, he rebukes. And he tells us to be zealous, not lukewarm, fired up, and repent. 
Number two, he says, open the door and Jesus will fellowship with you. It's a famous painting by William Holden Hunt called Christ at the Door. It's the most traveled piece of art probably in history. It's a Renaissance piece, what, in the mid-1800s? And if you were to go look at that picture this afternoon on Google, he actually did two of them. The first one took him, what, several years to paint. He went back and did a little bit different take on it later on. But the first one that you know is Jesus standing at a door and you notice that the hinges are rusty and there are vines growing all over the door, which indicates it hadn't been opened in a long, long time, if ever. And Jesus is standing there knocking at the door. And as you look at this picture, you understand that there's something missing on the outside of the door. What is it? It's the doorknob, the handle. That's right. Indicating that it's on the inside, that it, he can't open it from the outside. You must open it from the inside. And people have often said over the years, well, you know, that's for people to be saved. You need to open up your heart and give your life to Jesus. And people say, well, no, this is written to a church. Well, here's what I would say. It's yes and both. Because it is to the church, but every church is made up of individuals. And he's saying, I'm standing out here and I'm knocking. Open the door to me and I'll come in and I'll fellowship with you. And I would say to you this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ, he is standing at the door of your heart and life and he's knocking. And how does he knock? He knocks through the Bible. He knocks through preaching. He knocks through his spirit. He, no he knocks and he's asking you today, won't you open your life to me? And for Christians who perhaps have gotten too big for their britches and don't think that they need him, he's knocking and he's saying, won't you open the door so they can come in and fill you and fellowship with you? Obey because Jesus loves you. Open the door so Jesus will come in and fellowship with you. And then lastly, he says, overcome and Jesus will share his throne with you. He says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And so thrones in the Bible are a picture of victory. And here's what Jesus is saying. If you will obey, receive my rebuke and repent. And if you will open the door to your life, I will come into you. I will come into your life. I will fill you. I will fellowship with you. And then I'll share my throne and you will experience the victory that I have. It will be yours. And you will understand and know and experience the victorious Christian life. Amen. That's what he's saying. And I wonder how many here this morning need to obey. And I wonder how many here this morning need to open. And I wonder who this morning when they do that will overcome and then he closes the letter like all the others he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches